Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And is this our first killer appliance movie? I sure think so. Uh, The only thing that I was thinking could possibly compete with it is when we did Chopping Mall, which is about some some like security robots in a shopping mall that go mad and try to murder a bunch of party teens. But I think this may well be our first uh, our first film more in the in the zone of consumer or or domestic uh, appliances that go haywire and seek blood. I think you're probably right. The only other film that we've looked at on Weird House Cinema that comes close would be Ghost in the Machine, which oh, yeah. wasn't about like the appliances or the or the or any kind of AI going uh, going haywire. It was about uh, like a, a spirit, uh, a, a, an entity, a mind possessing all of these things, and and that is the thing that causes, say, a microwave to malfunction and uh, microwave an entire room. That's a, oh yeah, it's a serial killer whose brain gets sucked into the telephone wires, and then it can inhabit any machine. But right. but but oh yeah yeah okay. So that's a good point. That is kind of a killer appliance movie. But I think you have to break killer appliance horror movies down into two very distinct camps. There is one in which multiple appliances can be commandeered by an evil spirit or multiple appliances are attacking. So Ghost to the Machine would be one. Maximum Overdrive is another one. I think there's some kind yes. of alien force in that that turns Well, I think Maximum our- Overdrive should be our terminology for a full-blown all-appliances attack, all-human scenario. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So so that's like all your soda machines, all your hair dryers, they're they're mm-hmm. all on, on on the attack. Uh but the other camp is the movie in which there is a single appliance or machine or inanimate object that seeks human blood. And there your examples would be something like Deathbed, the bed that eats people or mm-hmm. or the movie we're going to be talking about today, The Lift from 1983, a Dutch killer elevator movie. And based on what I've been able to determine, I, I think this may be the first real killer elevator movie that um, that either inspired other elevate killer elevator movies or at least beat them to the punch. Are there really other killer elevator movies? I feel like I looked up a list of elevator horror movies, but they're just like they just take place in an elevator or feature an elevator. Um, I mean, I don't know. I guess some of these would, would would require getting to the like the spoiler point to find out is this an elevator or is there is there like a, an evil psychopath controlling the elevator? I don't know what the uh. you know the particular twist is going to be, but this is definitely a killer elevator movie. Uh, absolutely uh, to its core. Oh, wait, I, I just remembered something. I, I don't know if you, did you ever see Speed? You know, the 90, Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock? Oh, yeah, yeah. That begins with a, and it's sort of a killer elevator scenario. The elevator yes. has been hijacked by Dennis Hopper and it smashes an Estevez. Right, before he, ma- wait, an Estevez? Does- no, yeah. no, no, you're, there you're confusing it with the 1990s Mission Impossible movie. Oh, that, in well, which, there, that's an yeah. elevator that, I don't know, if, don't know if there's a psychopath behind it, but yeah, that elevator Ford. goes okay. haywire <laughs> and it smashes an Estevez. Are you telling me an Estevez is not smashed in speed? Uh, no, uh, I think someone is killed, but it's, uh, no, the problem in speed is that Dennis Hopper commandeers an elevator. Okay. Any, anyway, he, it's his, it's his trial run of the bus plan. Basically he puts a bunch of bombs on an elevator and he, okay. and, and he it does, does not kill does an Estevez. No, I don't think there is an Estevez okay. in speed. Okay. 
There's a Jeff Daniels in Speed. Is there? Yeah. Okay. Man, it's, they're, Ke- they're- it's Keanu and Jeff Daniels are the cops, um, and and Sandra Bullock is uh, the bus passenger who ends up driving. Okay. Been, been a while since I've seen it. I've clearly fused it together with at least two other films. Well, we're off to a great start here, but yeah, okay. <laughs> Let's just name some other movies that you can think of that have elevator scenes in them. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's that's one of the things about uh, elevators. I think they're an interesting subject for a film like like this uh-huh. because there's something about elevators uh, that resonate with us. I mean, you think of all the various elevator scenes in various films, and sometimes it's an action centerpiece. Other times it's just a situation. It's very often it's just a place for two characters to have uh, a conversation between scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're often very memorable. Like just, I was thinking like off the top of my head, what are some of the key elevator scenes I think of? I think of Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not, they're basically just standing around in there, but it's a great scene. Um, oh, I, I'm kind of feeling good. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful scene, even though they're just, they're just using it like normal people use an elevator as a way. Well, actually, there are multiple elevator scenes in that movie that are great because there's a flooding elevator. They have to escape. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah. But then you have uh, you have some real action centerpieces, uh, particularly in two different James Cameron films. You got Aliens, and you've got Terminator Two, both of which involve people fleeing into an elevator and then uh, a super powered uh, enemy prying the elevator open, only to be blasted with a shotgun. What do you know? You're right. And, yeah. So in one case, it's Robert Patrick as the liquid metal, and then the other case is just an alien warrior. Yeah, and I don't think until today I'd ever put it together that those two scenes are essentially the same scene, uh, but they're both great. Other key elevator scenes that come to mind, I mean, you've got like The Shining with the blood flowing out of it. You've got uh, that wonderful switcheroo that takes place in The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a really bloody reveal in The Untouchables from Brian De Palma. Uh, so th- those are just some of the ones that come to mind. Like there's something about the elevator that just works great for theater. It has its own curtains that open and close. Um, <laughs> it goes up and down. It smashes. It, you can climb on top of it. There are cables up there. Like we're just obsessed with the elevator. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that the elevator doors open in the same way that curtains open, like you say, I think that has a natural revelatory quality that that calls to mind sort of an unveiling, because Mm -hmm. there are a lot of scenes in movies, even beyond what you mentioned, where elevator doors peel back to reveal a scene that shocks someone who's there waiting for the elevator to arrive. So like in Die Hard, too, you know, there's a... There's a scene like that. And The Lift, the movie we're going to talk about today, I would say has at least five scenes where we don't immediately see what's in the elevator, but we see the doors open and then someone is there waiting for the elevator and they react with horror to whatever Mm -hmm. they see inside. You know, they react like they're looking at the security footage from Event Horizon. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, as we'll get into, I think, you know, you, you might well go into a movie like The Lift and think, all right, um, elevators work well, like a small dose here and there, maybe a couple of elevator scenes in a film. But if you build an entire movie based on the elevator, are you going to be able to maintain that level of, of interest in the elevator? Are you going to be able to, to find all these interesting ways to use it? And I think the answer is yes. I think this movie pulls it off. Well, yeah, and I think it it partially does so by having a sense of humor. I mean, mm-hmm. one thing I was kind of surprised by was it, the trailer made me think that this movie would be uh, 
drier and that more of the absurdity of it would just kind of flow out of uh, an, an understated realization of its absurd core premise. Mm-hmm. But in fact, this is a fairly juicy, campy movie. It's it's more along the lines of Chopping Mall or something like that. I can only suspect that this is even more the case if one is... Um is watching it in the original language because I watched it dubbed into English uh-huh. and this was the only option available to me. And the the dub is very good, but the dub is also, uh, like I feel like I've heard these same dub voices before in some cases, you know? Uh, it's, uh-huh. It feels like the same sort of American dub you'd get on any number of Italian films from the same uh, time period. Oh, but I, I absolutely loved the dub because some of the casting, or at least I, I don't know if it was like that they just cast people who sound this way or if they made conscious choices to deliver their lines in this hilarious manner. But, for example, the detective in the movie, oh, yes. who uh, his English dubbed voice sounds like somebody doing audiobook tracks for an Encyclopedia Britannica. So there's like a – when we first meet him, he's talking about why he doesn't like elevators. He says – I prefer the stairs, suffer from claustrophobia. That's why I became a policeman, would much rather put others in cells than wind up myself in prison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's I, the dub is very enjoyable. But I think that dubbing in general, uh, it kind of, it, it lends itself to a sort of dry humor uh, at times, you know? Yes. Um, so I, I can only imagine what the original uh, language uh, of this uh, would have would have felt like if if one is a you know an, an actual uh, Dutch viewer of the film. And yeah, I should uh, I should drive that home. This is uh, I think our first Dutch movie that we've looked at on Weird House Cinema. Though we have uh-huh. discussed films with that have involved Dutch directors, uh, we've also of course discussed uh, Dutch actors. Rudger Hauer is of course probably mm-hmm. the most famous Dutch actor of. Uh, of, uh, of of the 20th century uh, and beyond. Uh, and then also, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure that Hawaiian werewolf movie we watched had Dutch <laughs> subtitles because that's where that, we got Work Beast. Yes, that, well, yeah, the, the version that we found on YouTube uh, had Dutch subtitles, um, though it was itself not a Dutch film. But that <laughs> but the, that was another foray into the Dutch world uh, on this uh, this podcast. I apologize, I interrupted your flow though. What was what was the other thing you were going to say? Oh, uh, I was just going to reiterate that, yeah, our first true killer appliance movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that Chopping Mall does not count. Ghost in the Machine does not count. Because Ghost in the Machine is more in the maximum overdrive vein. Chopping Mall, those are killer robots anyway. They just started attacking the wrong people. Now, sometimes killer appliance movies, and when I say appliance, I'm going to use that very broadly to apply it to everything from a bed to an elevator. Um, but a lot of times it is something like a bed, something that you don't think of as being dangerous at all. But I think the elevator is a very interesting pick because for, it's an amazing technological advancement um, and one that, uh, you know, is like, all in, like all technological inventions, you know, you had maybe a rockier start at times. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I don't think I really hesitate when I board an elevator, or at least that wasn't the case uh, in pre-pandemic times. I might think about that more (laughs) now, like how many people are going to be on this? Are they masked, et cetera? But generally, I have a lot of confidence in the uh, technology and the regulations surrounding that technology. And yet, at the same time, I know that I have these on and off dreams about boarding strange elevators that are in varying stages of disrepair. So I feel like uh, underneath the surface of, of my consciousness, uh, there are a lot of uh, more complicated thoughts about the elevator and what the elevator is capable of. Oh, it sounds like you're a kindred soul with the inspector in this film. 
<laughs> well, I'm not, but that's the thing. I'm not. I'm not afraid of elevators at okay, all. Okay. Okay. I'm perfectly comfortable getting on them. I'm, you I, just have the the dreams where you inhabit his frame of mind, right? Which makes me me think that you know, with all of us, and in part of it probably comes from movies, right? I mm-hmm. mean, we yeah. we ride elevators, and for the most part, I think we're you know, most of us out there probably don't encounter much in the way of mishaps involving elevators. Um, Though I could see where that would that would certainly impact your um, you know appreciation of the technology if it, if it happened that way. But otherwise, we're watching all these movies, and in movies, elevators very often get stuck, and people have to climb through them and on top of them, or they plummet, etc. And in this movie, elevators will do all of those things. <laughs> yes, yes, and well, but another thing is that I I can't tell how much of the uh, the weirdness of the way elevators are treated in this movie is due to this being a movie from the the early 80s in the Netherlands or if it's just like weird about elevators because the characters in this movie talk about elevators like they are a kind of new and dangerous thing and mm-hmm. I don't think they were particularly new or dangerous in in the Netherlands in the 1980s is I, I don't know I could be wrong yeah I didn't I didn't get a chance to really research that but <laughs> there there's a, at least a time or two where a character makes a seemingly outrageous claim about elevator safety at the time. Um, I mean, I, I'm happy to be corrected on the matter, but we'll discuss that in a bit. Uh, there's some scene where like, they're like, did you know that 7 million people are decapitated by elevators every month? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost that ridiculous. I, I have it in the notes, so we'll, we'll get to that stat. But first, Joe, would you, uh, would, would you go ahead and give us an elevator pitch for this elevator movie? Oh, I think here's one where we, we we're obligated to say pun not intended. But uh, when an <laughs> elevator in a Dutch tower building starts attacking and killing random people, it is up to uh, intrepid elevator repairman Felix Adelar to debug the death lift. All right. Well, let's go ahead and listen to that trailer. Deep inside this vertical city, a machine has come to life. <laughs> A machine with a terrible secret. Modern technology gave birth to the lift. But the lift has made itself smarter, stronger, and deadlier. stairs take the stairs for god's sake take the stairs now i don't know if the audio we just featured included the tagline but if not it is take the stairs take the stairs for God's sake, take the stairs. <laughs> uh, excellent classic uh, horror. You know, it's, it's very don't. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, uh, I have to admit, I usually watch the trailer for a film before I view it. But in this case, uh, I just, uh, you know, you, 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 were, you were convinced that this was a, a movie to watch. I, I looked at the IMDb listing for it. I said, let's do it. Uh, but I, I went ahead and skipped watching the trailer completely so mm-hmm. I could go into it, uh, you know, uh, rather fresh. Well, sometimes it's good to go in fresh, but in this case, I'd just say, you know, watch the trailer. (laughs) 
Now, I guess to talk about the real creative forces behind the lift, uh, number one has got to be old Dick Moss. That's right. Dick Moss, uh, that last name spelled M-A-A-S, director, writer, uh, and also composed the music on this film, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which I have to say is, I, I thought was rather pleasant. It's a nice, atmospheric, electronic score. Um, uh, you know, nothing that I need to seek out on vinyl necessarily, but, um, mm-hmm. but, but I thought it was solid and did its job well. Uh, n- no acoustic instruments to get your hackles up. <laughs> right, right. No, no stirring piano pieces. Uh, so I say, good, good job, Dick Moss. Now, Dick Moss, uh, yeah, Dutch film director, screenwriter, film producer, and film composer, who's produced quite a filmography of TV and screen credits between 1984 and 2016. His first feature was a comedy called Rigor Mortis uh, in 1981, and this film from '83 was the follow-up. And uh, it was uh, apparently something of a hit, uh, at least in, in the long run, earning sort of a, a B-movie following over time. It's, it's listed in the Psychotronic Video Guide. And uh, allegedly, Dick Moss was offered the chance to direct both a Nightmare on Elm Street movie after this, as well as a Jean-Claude Van Damme film. One assumes that these are two separate films and not the same film. But at any rate, he declined and instead went on to make the Dutch action flick Amsterdamned instead, a film that I haven't seen but was already familiar with due to its um, its following and, of course, that just ridiculous title that um, mm-hmm. was so well chosen. H- having seen The Lift, I would love to see what his Nightmare on Elm Street movie would have been like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can, I, can, I can see it. I can see it. Where would you have, uh, if you could, you could put him in there, put him in the mix, where, which, uh, which director would you take out and, uh, and slot uh, Dick Moss in? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I might replace part five, the dream child. Uh, that, that one's not a lot of fun. Okay. And do you think you could also fit Jean-Claude Van Damme in there as well? Yes. Jean-Claude Van Damme would play, uh, let's see, he would play Freddy Krueger's twin brother. Uh, <laughs> no no explanation on that. We'll just, you know, put him in another sweater. It, it'll work. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> All right, uh, Dick Moss also had a lot of success with the Flaughter comedy series, which I'm to understand is kind of a politically incorrect satire series uh, that was um, controversial at the time, but uh, also uh, generated a big following. And while his comedies seem more aimed at a Dutch audience, his action and horror films seem to have a, a broader aim in mind. And he eventually made a few films with more American star power, uh, which includes 1999's Do Not Disturb, starring William Hurt, Jennifer Tilly, Michael Chiklis, and Dennis Leary. Weird. Okay. And he, of course, also helmed an American remake of this movie, The Lift, <laughs> in 2001, a film titled either Down or The Shaft, uh, depending on um, where you're acquiring it or where, where you might have seen it. Um, it is... So it's not a film that I've watched in its entirety, but I, I signed up for the Full Moon Channel to watch The Lift and... Uh, the remake is also on the Full Moon channel, so I I watched a little of it and skipped around, and it's not a it's not in an it's not in its entirety a shot for shot remake, but sections of it are definitely uh, seem to be a shot for shot remake with uh, uh, say CGI assisted effects instead of practical effects. Oh bummer! 
though I'm sure that is safer. There's there. So I, uh, the, the main reading about the production I did was on, uh, IMDB, which has, you know, some user submitted content. You can't always be sure about that, but it does sound like some of the, <laughs> some of the effects may have had people a little bit worried while they were shooting them. Like I, at least at some point it is alleged that they, they filmed a scene where a guy gets decapitated by an elevator by actually sort of putting a guy's head under an elevator, but they did oh. it in reverse. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I don't know. That is a it, that is a legitimately horrifying scene, and I and I will say it is horrifying in both the remake um, and the original. Uh, even though I'm, I'm going to lean towards the practical effects uh, versus the CGI, I still have to have to say it's it's pretty horrifying to watch in both cases. Well, I, I guess I'd say my preference is yes. I, I always prefer practical effects. Pretty much, they look better. But you can do you can build like a fake elevator that has no weight. You know, right? Like, but, but I think that probably wasn't within the budget of, of what they. Right. Were doing I, I definitely like knowing that nobody almost got actually de- decapitated in a film <laughs> <laughs> that I'm watching. Um, now that uh, that update, that 2001 uh, uh, remake, also uh, had a pretty great cast. It had Naomi Watts. This is Naomi Watts pre Mulholland Drive by the way um featured a, a villainous uh, role played by michael ironside who is of course Ooh. always tremendous you have ron perlman in there edward herman and dan hedaya oh and also this is funny the main character in the remake uh, by the way i did not know there that this guy had remade the lift for american audiences when i picked this movie but the main character in the remake is James Marshall, who was the the, the biker boy in Twin Peaks, mm. and he he was also uh, one of the kids in uh, what's it called uh, A Few Good Men. He's the kind of uh, not too bright uh, of the two accused. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I barely remember that that film, but I'll tell you this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not really weird house cinema material. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not so much. They'll love a good sanctimonious courtroom drama. <laughs> uh, uh, at any rate, um, it, it looks like the the remake is is enjoyable on its own terms as well. Um, but uh, but it, it is definitely you definitely get that Americanized sense. Like from the get go, there are more curse words. Uh, mm. There's there's more nudity, uh, and and there's also a bazooka and an Aerosmith song in there. An Aerosmith song? Yeah. Which song? Oh, you know which song. It's an elevator movie. Which, which one are they going to put in? Oh, there? of course. Okay. I, I yeah. was thinking maybe don't want to miss a thing. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's playing as the guy gets decapitated by an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the, uh, the, cl- I think it's the credit song, uh, actually. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Moss, uh, was, he was not done there. Dick Moss also went on to direct the 2010 film uh, Scent, or I think it's sometimes... Uh, released as The Saint. And this was uh, his return to the horror genre. It is a film about a killer, satanic, uh, Sinterklaas figure, a, um, like a, a, like a, a, an evil, punishing Dutch Santa Claus, which mm-hmm. was something of a hit at the time. Apparently, it was kind of controversial, uh, but, had, but it garnered an audience. Like, I, I think I've been noticing the box for this film at Videodrome for many years, but I just haven't seen it. Mm. Mass's most recent film was 2016's Prey, and this was about a killer CGI lion rampaging through Amsterdam, starring English actor Mark Frost. And while this was his last film to date, uh, Dick Moss was the subject of the 2020 documentary The Dick Moss Method, uh, which um, I, I was looking around. I don't know that this is available um, to us yet, uh, but I, I'm, I'm kind of interested uh, 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 to, to see it. Uh, you know, what certainly. is The Dick Moss Method? 
I'm not sure, but it's it seems to be a, have been a successful method because he 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 was by by all accounts a, a pretty successful filmmaker, especially uh, um, you know w- within uh, the Netherlands, uh, you know, and uh, and clearly was able to uh, to reach beyond it. I mean, we're talking about him here today. Okay, but it is at least a method. The method is a method of filmmaking. I, I was trying to imagine: is this like an alternative to the Heimlich maneuver? Like, <laughs> no, I assume I'm, I'm assuming it's about his uh, his approach to filmmaking. Okay, all right. So that is the uh, the creative uh, force behind the scenes. Uh, we should get into the cast a little bit, though. This is definitely one of those cases where a lot of people were involved in this, and just about everybody in it is is great in their own way. But uh, how many uh, Dutch actors, uh, you know, can we really mention on the show uh, if, if there aren't a lot of real connections to be made, especially for a largely, uh, you know, you know English speaking audience? Apologies in, in advance on our attempts to pronounce these Dutch names. Uh, but the, we, we should talk about the, the guy who plays the protagonist, Hube Stapel, Stapel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he plays what? Felix Adelaar. Adelar, and uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, so yeah, Adelar is our elevator technician hero. Uh, he was born 1954, a Dutch actor who has popped up in a number of Dick Moss pictures, often in the lead. So he's in Flodder. Uh, he's also in. He's the lead in Amsterdam, and he's also the evil Nicholas in the Scent movie. So he plays the the evil Santa Claus figure in that. This would explain – so in, in The Lift, he's got very uh, boyish good looks. So I kept comparing – actually, he looks a lot like Paul McCartney in a way. He does, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, he's got a great look, um, and, and, he's, and he's a solid actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, so, yeah, he's, he's got a, a good uh, kind of stoic screen presence. Uh, he's good looking. He looks kind of like a Paul McCartney with a little dash of Oscar Isaac in there as well. Yeah, yeah, I could see that, yeah. But 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 the thing about the sa- this would explain why uh, we found this hilarious when we first looked him up. Uh, the the picture that came up was a picture of him dressed as Father Christmas with like <laughs> scary looking shadows around him, right? And, and an uh, inverted cross on the, yeah. the big uh, uh, Santa Pope hat. Yep, the bishop's hat. Very good. <laughs> So, uh, Staple has been in a a number of Dutch films, so it's, you know, very active. Um, So, I'm not going to mention everything, but I have to mention this one. Uh, He was in the 1988 TV movie about Anne Frank, starring Mary Steenburgen, Paul Schofield, and Tom Wilkinson. Actually, I think Tom Uh Wilkinson had a smaller role, but he's in it. Uh I, I don't think I ever saw this. I didn't either, but the interesting thing about it, it's, it's uh, again, 1988, it's titled The Attic, the, Id- the Hiding of Anne Frank. And I'm not sure if it's, you know, good or bad. I, I have no information about the quality of the picture, but it uh, featured the cinematography talents of one Peter Jackson. Huh. And it launched on the Kraft Golden Showcase Network. Yes, a television network that was created by Kraft Foods, and I think ultimately lasted in one form or another almost a decade. With the dramatization about Anne Frank? Yeah. That is a weird venue for for that. I was not able to find any other information about this TV network that perhaps comes from another dimension, <laughs> but uh, I would. I'm very interested. Like, how did? What else was on there? I think there were like two different movies that I saw credited as having been a Kraft Golden Showcase Network uh, production. But clearly, you got to have more than that, uh, especially if you're on the air in some form or another for for many years. Wow. Well, as far as I know, I, I've never heard of that. Okay, let's move on to our next uh, our next actor. Um, 
this is the uh, the actor uh, Vilke van Amelroy, who plays uh, Mickey de Beer. Uh, she is uh, this character is essentially our scrappy news reporter. You know, you got to have a scrappy yeah. news reporter in, in a picture like this. Who's all about getting in there, finding the answers. Yeah, she. Uh, in fact, I would say that this movie sort of has two protagonists. Uh, that that uh, Hube Staple as as the elevator repairman is one, and she sort of comes in later to become the the other lead. And she's pursuing forbidden knowledge and sort of spurs our our young Paul McCartney hero to uh, to 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 dive deeper. Right. Yeah. So uh, the interesting thing here is that uh, Vilke is a major Dutch actor and director who appeared in, in films during the 1970s opposite such actors as Rudger Hauer uh, in the, the films uh, The Year of the Cancer and a film by the name of uh, uh, Gripstra and De Geer. Uh, and then she's also worked with, um, with other major actors of, uh, of Dutch cinema and international cinema, such as uh, Rick de Geer and Telly Savalas. That uh, in the the film uh, Killer, the Killer is on the phone from 1972. That's the one with uh, Telly Savalas in it. Hmm. She also appeared in the 1981 Ate de Jong film, A Flight of Rainbirds, starring uh, Jerome Crabbe. Uh, Ate de Jong, of course, directed Highway to Hell. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, but uh, this is just just working up to her, probably her most famous fil- film credit. She appeared in. Um, uh, in, because this one was a major hit. She has the lead role in the 1995 uh, Marlene Goris film, Anatonia's Line, uh, which is about a, a Dutch matron. Uh, this is a movie that won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. And if you're not familiar with Marlene Goris, uh, uh, she is a noted Dutch feminist and LGBT director and writer. Um, it, uh, yeah, it, it, was a, it was a huge hit and it's supposed to be just a great film. Well, I've never seen any of her good movies, but she's great in this B movie. Uh, she she's got a great sense of humor. Like I think she gets what this movie's about. She gets the tone, she gets the vibe, yeah. um and has the right kind of sense of mischief about about pursuing the plot. Yeah, yeah, totally. She nails it and uh she's I think still active. Um uh, a film that some uh, viewers slash listeners may be familiar with uh, is that uh, Villaki was in the 2006 film The Lake House that starred uh, Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock, and Christopher Plummer. Hmm. Never saw that either. Now, once again, there are various other actors in this who are all all great. A number of them seem to have been Dick Moss regular players, uh, and and any number of them have connections to you know to, to folks like Rudger Hauer and Rick DeGuer. Um, and, uh, and 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 to each other, of course. Uh, but I think that'll 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 have to do it. But if you're uh, if you were more familiar with Dutch cinema than we are, definitely take a look at the listing for the lift on IMDb, and uh, you may find some uh, amusing connections. Well, are you ready to talk about the plot? Let's get into the plot. You know, this movie lets you know what it's about at the very beginning because it begins with a pan over a passing elevator that mimics the Star Destroyer at the beginning of Star Wars. <laughs> yes. So that comes along with the credits. But when we first meet some humans and and uh, and have some drama, uh, we get into something that is a, a regular feature of killer appliance movies. In fact, not just killer appliance movies, because killer appliance movies have something in common with creature features, slasher movies, uh, a lot of monster movies and other horror subgenres, which is that the film must begin 
with an attack by the antagonist, whether that's human, animal, monster, or even an inanimate object, on a random person or group of random people before we meet our protagonist. Absolutely. I mean, you see this rule in play probably most famously in Jaws, but uh, right. you can you can probably pinpoint it in just about anything. Um, like one prime example that comes to mind is um, is the Game of Thrones franchise. I think both the uh, the first novel. <laughs> Oh, and the see it series begin with just a little prologue in which people are slaughtered by white walkers. Oh yeah, that's right. What's it? I, oh, I can almost remember one of their names, like Waymar Royce, I think is one of them. And they're, yeah. they're up north of the wall or something. And yeah, I remember and some of the reading others that. Get them. <laughs> I remember reading it for the first time, and I was doing that thing with, that you sometimes do with books, where you're like, "All right, this is my guy. All right, I got his name down. Yep, I'm picturing what he looks like." And then uh, George R. R. Martin like kills him in one chapter oh, oh dead yeah. yeah all of them oh no one of them survives the prologue to be beheaded in the following chapter oh okay okay <laughs> but anyway anyway the lift adheres to form on the, on this matter uh so we begin the movie in a restaurant on the top floor of an office slash apartment building i guess this would technically be a mixed use development uh, mm-hmm. to use I don't know if they used that term back then, but uh, that's what it is. It's this tower building. It's got apartments. It's got offices, and it's got a restaurant on the top floor. And there are four rowdy drunk people who are overstaying their welcome after close at a restaurant on the top floor that we later find out is called Restaurant Icarus, which (laughs) is an interesting choice. I did not notice that in my viewing of the film this morning. (laughs) So that's wonderful. Wonderfully on the nose. It's like if we try to earn a Michelin star, we will we will soar too high and then crash into the waves. <laughs> Outbreaks of listeria. <laughs> oh, and by the way, regarding this scene, get up on my my as someone with restaurant experience soapbox, uh, uh, folks. Please don't overstay your welcome at a restaurant after close. If you come in late, you know that's fine. But people are trying to close up. Just just try to get done with what you're doing as quickly as possible and get out of there. Uh, people got things to do when they're closing up a restaurant. You got to bust dishes. You got to clean the dining room. A lot of times, people can't do that until you're gone. So just mm. uh, don't don't hang around if it's after close. I remember a Pizza Hut that I went to when I was a kid. What they would do is they would flip the lights on and off. I don't know if that's standard operating procedure at restaurants. I like that. That's a good assertive manager trying to get you out of there. <laughs> well, that flies at, at Pizza Hut. But this is Restaurant Icarus, so they're, right. they're, they can't do that. This is a fancy place, though. Mm-hmm. So y- this is a fancy place with like a, a, a maitre d' in a, in a you know fancy little outfit. I think uh, – uh, the maitre d' here might be the guy we saw in the credits whose name was Johan Hobo. It is. It is, definitely. Okay. Um, but, uh, so, uh, but, but, but despite this being a fancy place, these diners are, I don't know, they're up to no good. I'm not sure exactly what's going on with them, but they're clearly mm-hmm. uh, drunk and getting into trouble. They are cavorting around with sloppy jokes that very much reminded me of the guy in the 500 Little Wigs sketch and I Think You Should Leave. You remember the, the um, guy who's he's so I, comfortable in his skin because he, he can go bald gracefully. <laughs> I don't. I do not remember that one specifically, but I totally get you on the uh, the, the the general Tim uh, Tim Robinson vibe here because yeah, yes. they are just ridiculously outrageously uh, drunk. These four, we're embarrassed for them. We're yes. embarrassed for the people who have to watch them and are waiting for them to leave. Right. So uh, anyway, they get shooed out of the restaurant and they're taking the elevator down to meet their cab. But while they're in the elevator, lightning strikes and the power goes out. 
And then they, they're fooling around in the elevator doing all kinds of stuff. And then uh, something starts happening and it is as if they are being ambiently attacked by like the air in the elevator. I really did not understand what was going on here. They react almost as if they are being attacked with some kind of sonic weapon or psychic pain ray. Yeah. We're to, I guess we're to understand that the, the something goes, seems to go wrong with both the, um, uh, the, the movement of the elevator and also the air circulation like and and also and also suddenly they're heating up so it's like yeah it's like they're being microwaved in the elevator somehow yes like rays are hitting them and causing agonizing pain uh, and also but there's like a kind of grating noise which made me think sonic weapon somebody's mm-hmm. aiming some kind of like down down kind of thing at them but no it turns out uh, oh and also i was sure they were dead when the power came oh yeah i thought so too because you yeah. see like you have a pov shot from one of the women in there as like everybody else falls out and then uh, her vision blurs and goes dark exactly and so then the doors open to reveal a, a gaggle of dumbfounded waiters and they look inside the elevator in horror uh but then the next scene lets us on to the facts that uh, they were not killed they were nearly killed and the problem was that the air conditioning failed mm-hmm. uh, which just does not i don't know uh it doesn't really comport with what we were seeing but okay but that's our prologue. That's our, our our attack before we meet the protagonist. So the next thing you got to do is meet the protagonist. Uh, we meet him with his family. And again, this is uh, Hube Stoppel or Hube Staple, uh, who plays this character named Felix Adelar, our stoic elevator repairman. Again, he looks kind of like Paul McCartney. Um, and we get some foreshadowing of some family dynamics that are going to go on uh, later in the movie. Because when we first meet him, he is nursing a black eye that he received apparently because he smiled at some lady and her husband punched him in the face. Yeah, and this is like the first kind of red flag with this character. Um, we, we end up spending a lot of time with the family. And I think one of the things that I'm, I've, I've been thinking about with this movie uh, is that generally in a film like this, the, the film of this caliber, you know, essentially a B film that's a horror film, you're going to go br- just widely in one direction or another with a character like this. Like either he's a great family man, you know, put in a, um, a an unnatural situation, or he's a complete dog <laughs> put in an unnatural situation. Yeah, he's, uh, he's not really either here. No, and in fact, there's a fair amount of ambiguity regarding like what – What's really wrong in this relationship with his wife? Uh, they've uh, we, we find out later they've been together like ten years or nearly ten mm-hmm. years, and um, you know there's not. I don't know. It's it's almost like within this killer elevator movie, um, uh, Dick uh, Moss was also making this kind of uh, more subtle family meditation, you know, and a, yeah. and sort of a look at like what happens with relationships over time. I don't know. So we get more information about this as we move on, but but we begin with this breakfast scene, family breakfast scene, and um, it, I think it's actually a really admirable sequence because there's a lot going on in this scene. Uh, we're uh-huh. establishing the characters, the you know, getting a hint of this family dynamic we've been discussing. We're uh, you know entering into the plot, uh, and, and there's still time for some family humor in there. There's some like legitimately kind of like you know some funny stuff that's discussed, and then in the background at the end, there's a cat scratching at the sliding glass door trying uh-huh. to get in. Um, so I don't know. I just felt like it was a very competent scene to, uh, for for a horror movie. Plus, you also have 
a toy ambulance gag that's really great. Like after that whole business happened with the uh, with the elevator and the four drunks, we cut flat, you know, just a, a, a flash cut to an ambulance seemingly going down the road and then you're watching it and you're like oh i think that's a toy and then you're like no no i don't think it's a toy at all it's it's a real ambulance and then it runs into somebody's foot and you realize oh it is a toy it is the the son's toy yeah that one got me too i i thought that was a really good visual gag and then one of the funny things is that immediately uh the mom is like uh couldn't you get our son a quieter toy like a book (laughs) and and he's like no you know loud toys are good (laughs) i don't i that that doesn't seem like a very common parental opinion but right (laughs) they have very very different opinions on this and and there doesn't seem to be a lot of room to compromise so another another problem sign for this relationship Well, anyway, Felix gets a call to go check out the lift, and so begins the investigation that will define the rest of the film. Uh, But he he gets a call, you know, oh, some people nearly suffocated in in an elevator last night. Uh, You got to go figure out what's wrong with it. So we see him drive to the office tower, and he gets into a consultation with – is this with the building superintendent or with a different guy? It's with the guy named Bush. The really tall, chatty guy. (laughs) Yes, uh, and so he, he meets with Bush and starts trying to figure out what's going on with the elevator. And I thought one of the first things that was funny was he goes, he goes in there and he just kind of fiddles with one button or switch real quick. And then he's like, looks like nothing's wrong to me. Yeah. They're able to tell so much from just that one little switch, which, um, is in it. I, I don't know. Maybe there was something in the dub on this because I feel like for the most part, this is a movie that seems to take elevators very seriously. Uh, yes. Like we're, we're using a lot of like legitimate elevator shaft, uh, you know, uh, locations. They at one point we're in a we're in a, an elevator factory or mm-hmm. a repair shop or something. So like it really got in there and wanted to learn about elevators. And there's a lot of talk about how elevators work. So uh, it, it feels a little weird that we have this sequence where they're just flipping a switch and making very broad statements about the functionality of this particular lift. Now, on the flip side of what you say, um, you know, I, I feel like you and I are usually pretty careful not to uh, conclude things are really simple. You know, you always assume that things might be more complicated than they look at first. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if elevators are really as electronically complicated as this movie ultimately makes them seem. <laughs> because the next thing that happens is he's like, well, okay, I got to go up and look at the control panel. And when they reach the, you know, the, the, roof, or I guess the, I don't know, the machine room at the top of the building where the control panel is, they start talking about how there's this other box, this blue box containing the microprocessors that guide the lift, and it's full of all these chips, and it's all this complicated computer stuff that's way over his head. Again, I want to be fair, but I don't know if elevators are really all that computationally complicated. Well, they mentioned that you don't want all three elevators opening on the same floor at the same time, and you got to have microprocessors. you got to have chips to take care of that, Joe. All right. Maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> there used to be a guy in there controlling the elevator. Now That's it's true. chips doing it. So Right. By the way, we're, we're going to get more. This is not the last we've heard of chips in this yes. movie. There's going to be so much about chips, and it's one of my favorite things about the film. Uh, but while he's up there fiddling around with the control panel, trying to see if that uh, gives any indication of what went wrong the night before, uh, there's some idle chit chat about the last guy, the last elevator repair man, whose name was Brooker. And they're like, oh, too bad he went totally insane. He spent a really long time on the last maintenance visit. 
But they said he was great. They said this was why he was yeah. like so competent. He spent a, spent a lot of time on the last visit to this elevator. Right. Uh, so Felix is not able to identify the problem. He says, well, maybe it's just a short circuit. But ultimately, he doesn't know. So he goes back home, and then we get some more scenes at the home uh, uh, with the family discussing things. Uh, Felix and his wife discuss how she is saving the caps to some kind of brand of beverage bottle. I think it might be just seltzer or something. Um, and she's saving the caps because if she collects 100 of them, she could win a trip to Hawaii. Right, yeah. And he's just kind of like... Didn't we go to an island last year? So there's a huge disconnect <laughs> yeah. here where like she wants to go to Hawaii. Uh, he's like, I've been to an island. What could Hawaii possibly offer me? Yes. Uh, and then Water on all like, sides. I've done it. <laughs> they have some great exchange. I don't remember exactly. It's something she's like, you're not romantic anymore. And he goes, I'm still that way. <laughs> <laughs> I am still that thing you said. I will not say it, but I am that thing. Uh, and then, so, okay, from here, the movie continues according to the Killer X movie format. So you've got your initial attack, check. Uh, meet your protagonist, check. Initial investigation, turns up nothing, check. So now you're 20 minutes in, guess what it's time for? One to three more Killer X attacks. In this mm -hmm. case, it is the Killer Elevator. And what do you know? I think we get two of them in this case. So in the first attack, uh, the elevator, uh, the elevator murders a blind man by opening the doors without a car present and tricking him into, and it tricks him into walking into the shaft and falling to his death. And this one felt especially awful. Yeah. This is one they also did in the remake. Uh, so, <laughs> so fans of the first film, don't worry. They did it again. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I didn't particularly like this one because, uh, I mean, it felt kind of mean spirited, but also it runs contrary to everything I've I, I've, I've seen regarding um, uh, uh, blind or sight challenged people navigating public spaces. Uh, you know, like gen generally, it seems like uh, uh, like 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 people like using a, a cane uh, in these cases are more aware of their physical around surroundings than uh, sighted people who are distracted by their phones and so forth. So I didn't really buy for a minute that that he would have just walked into that empty elevator shaft without like tapping the floor of the elevator, or in this case, the, 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 the yawning absence in front of him. But then the second attack feels more, more sort of on brand for a movie of this type. It is where the elevator attacks a couple of night security guards. Mm. Uh, so there are two guards who were there. I don't know, you know, it's two in the morning and in, in the, the play, the place should be deserted. Uh, and you got your two guards, you got a young guard who's very well behaved. He's an Eagle scout type. You find out he is engaged to be married and he does not drink on the job. And then there's an older <laughs> guard who very much advocates drinking on the job. Oh and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not, not only does he advocate drinking on the job, he advocates just all matter of hell raising and brags about the fact that he apparently caught so many STDs when he was younger that he is now immune to penicillin. That is what he says. Yes. Yes. Um, and then he, wouldn't you know it, you know, that they start noticing the elevators are acting weird. So that they've run up and down the stairs, chasing the elevators that appear to be uh, going up and down by themselves. And then eventually the, uh, the, the gin guzzling guard goes up to an elevator shaft and then the doors slam shut on his head. And then the elevator just slides on down and decapitates him like a square guillotine. 
it is a, a horrifying scene. This is the scene we were talking about earlier. Uh, there's a version of it in both the original and the remake. And like, again, it's this one where it's virtually shot for shot remake with the uh, CGI instead of uh, uh, practical. But yeah, in this movie, yeah, absolutely horrifying. Uh, fake head falling down the elevator shaft and landing virtually in the, the dead blind man's lap. I would say this scene in particular is a is a strangely powerful combination of actually horrifying and comedic at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and and like you've pointed out before on the show, like having that 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 comedic element perhaps intensifies what you're willing to buy, you know, yeah. in the sequence. So it helps it helps make it work better. Uh, so anyway, after this, we meet the bumbling detective who comes in to explain that he doesn't like elevators, prefers the stairs. Um, and, uh, and starts spitting like elevator, elevator tragedy facts at people. Uh, but th- this is also the guy I mentioned earlier who sounds like he's, he's doing the, uh, the audiobook track for an encyclopedia. You know what I realized? This may be way too niche. Uh, but for anybody who's ever played the Mass Effect video games, mm-hmm. he sounds like the voiceover who reads all of the like encyclopedia entries in that game for the aliens and stuff. Huh. Okay. Now, uh, th- this is the character that that has some uh, some wonderful sort of anti elevator uh, facts and propaganda on hand. Mm-hmm. The one that he he belts out that really astounded me is uh, is the idea that two hundred and fifty thousand people per year uh, get stuck in elevators in the Netherlands alone. Uh, so this is nineteen eighty three. Uh, I, I didn't research this, but that just sounds like a very high number. 250,000 people per year in the Netherlands stuck in elevators. Where are they getting their elevators? I don't know. I mean, how, I, I, I would, I mean, it just, I, I want to see a full breakdown on that. Like how many elevators were there in the Netherlands in 1983? How many people were getting stuck yeah. on each one? Uh, it, Who's it collecting sounds like this a crazy data. number. Yeah, how, how are they... <laughs> How are they getting this number? Do, do they have a, a, a government task force that has to collect a report anytime somebody gets stuck in an elevator? Yeah, so I don't know. It felt it felt really high. Uh, maybe it's accurate. Maybe uh, you know I'm the fool here, but uh, uh, I don't know. Well, anyway, so the police are investigating the, these elevator attacks, and then Felix, of course, gets called back to the building again because he's got to take another crack at figuring out what went wrong. And while he's there, he meets up with our secondary protagonist, Mickey DeBeer, uh, the, the journalist who writes for The New Review. Uh, when she mentions this to him, I don't know if this is a real magazine or or, or, or a paper or if it's uh, made up for the film, but Felix reacts by saying, oh, The New Review, huh? I see it sometimes in my neighbor's birdcage. That was a good line. <laughs> So that makes me wonder, uh, oh, is the new review supposed to be some kind of tabloid? It's like the weekly world news for mm, maybe so uh, for for the Netherlands, I don't know. Uh but she is there because she's got a she's got a hunch. She's investigating this company called Rising Sun that makes the microprocessors we mentioned that are in that blue box that supposedly controls the elevator that guides it. And, uh, and of course, Bush, the guy from the office, uh, he, he's trying to get rid of her. He doesn't want her sniffing around. So he throws them out. Uh, Felix still can't find a problem with the lift, uh, though, though uh, it seems De Beer has sort of caught his attention with her weird hunches. Oh, but from here, we go on to a tremendous bowling sequence at a place that I want to go to called Klaus Party House. 
Yeah, I mean, in general, this film just does a great job with with locations. Like, I'm interested in every minor location. Like the, the that the house that the family lives in is very interesting, and this is a you know clearly a a Dutch bowling alley from the nineteen eight the early eighties, and uh, it, it's yeah I'm, I'm instantly just all into the background here. Uh, there's a banner that says Kloss Party House. Uh, so, which I, I'm assuming is the name of the bowling alley. And then as they, they go to the bar and they're, they're ordering a drink, the, the characters, and they're talking, uh, I'm, I'm not really listening to them all that much because I'm noticing that the score panels above each of the, at the bowling lanes, um, you know, we're used to seeing the score up there. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in a bowling alley, but here it seems to be some sort of projection method because you see scorecards up there, but then the silhouettes of hands uh, manually altering the scorecard. Oh, they're like those projectors, like classroom projectors yeah. where you can write on the transparency, but here you're writing the scores. Which uh, I, I just had no idea that this was ever a thing. Like I've, I've mostly been to bowling alleys that have the you know, the electronic scoring system and it scores it for you. And I've also been to at least one bowling alley where there, you had to do everything by hand on paper, but it wasn't in any way projected for you. Well, I did love that. And I also love other things about this scene, which are the, the central premise, the character drama in the scene is that Felix is too preoccupied with the lift and he can't focus on bowling. Because <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a family uh, affair. He's out bowling. With, it's like a double date. He's out yeah, bowling with his, with his wife and a couple of friends of theirs. And the friends who like the guy, he wants a beer, but his wife's like, no, you'll have tonic. <laughs> Tonic's pretty good. To- to- I, I, I'm, I've become a fan of tonic. Yeah, you got to get your quinine in. Uh, and then from here, the middle section of the movie, we might skip over a little more lightly. It sort of transitions into more uh, investigation, investigation mode, he, uh, and also um, family drama mode. But uh, but Felix and and uh, and Mickey DeBeer, they start figuring out well, something strange is going on with this elevator. Could it have something to do with this company, with this ominous name of Rising Sun? You know, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that sounds like it could be sinister in some way. And uh, so one of the leads that they get into is that Felix is at his office and he has some uh, banter with like weird crass coworkers. And then he finds out, uh, th- oh, the guy they referenced earlier, the the former maintenance man at this tower who had worked on the elevator before, who is now committed to a sanitarium. Uh, Felix is wondering, could it be that he sabotaged the elevator? But everybody he talks to is like, no, that doesn't seem right. He loved elevators. He would never do this to elevators. <laughs> Um, and so eventually Felix goes to, uh, visit Brooker at the sanitarium where, uh, Brooker appears near catatonic. Uh, apparently he badly lacerated his hands, uh, when he, uh, uh, when he previously attacked a television after seeing something on it, he didn't like. And the question is, what did he see on the TV that, that made him smash the screen in? But, uh, you know, he, he can't get an answer. Um, and then meanwhile, there's another elevator attack or a, mm-hmm. a near elevator attack. Unfortunately, this movie would not pass the Gene Siskel test for uh, does this movie depict a child in peril? Because it, it, it manipulates you by suggesting that the elevator might kill a child uh, who, by the way, is she's like hanging out in the lobby of the office building because her mom is having an affair with the building superintendent. Uh, but fortunately, the child is unharmed. Uh, the elevator does injure her doll. 
So first of all, yeah, this is this is ultimately a good sequence, one that they they again recreated almost shot for shot in the the remake. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not as familiar with Gene Siskel's rule here. Did was this something where like if if you depict a child in peril, it's like it automatically a thumbs down for him, or automatically a, 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 a you know lose a star? Well, he I don't think he actually had a formalized rule, but uh, I I recall from a number of his reviews, this was often something he would pick out that he didn't like about a movie was that it uh, had a scene where children were in peril. I don't it, it seems it seems to me like he thought that maybe that was in bad taste or that it was manipulative or something. Well, I'll, I'll let everybody know that no dogs or cats are killed by elevators in this movie, right. uh, though it apparently loves to kill rats. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And no children are actually harmed either. There is just there's just the implication. Yeah, though. Oh God, though. The, the, but the, the the stinger to this uh, scene though is that it it like mangles her doll. Like right. basically, the thing with the killer elevator is that it has to be very patient, and it has to it ha- doesn't have that very it doesn't have very many um, ways to uh, influence the outside world. So it's not always gonna gonna actually score a hit. In this case, it was probably trying to kill a child. It just had to mangle a doll, and then when her mom comes out of the uh, uh from the affair situation and finds out what's happened she slaps the child across the face oh god yeah that was weird yeah 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 i've forgotten it's about like, that oh we were like what yeah and then she leaves and we never see those characters again <laughs> yeah very weird War- warning on that well, anyway, after this attack, we get back into the investigation, and so uh, we've got we've got Felix and Debeer, and they're uh, they're they're trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, oh, and there's a breakthrough, I think, when they're sitting around talking. Well, first of all, there's a fun. I, I don't remember exactly where this happened, but there was one exchange that had Rachel and me laughing really hard, uh, which was when Felix says something like. Uh, this lift does things it shouldn't. And De Beer says, I've done things I shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's like taken up for the elevator. It's like, come on. Elevators. I don't know. My people. Um, but but, but the, the thing they get to is that uh, the, they start talking about Rising Sun, that manufacturer of computer chips. And De Beer fills uh, Felix in on uh, the fact that actually this company was featured on a science program on television last week. So mm-hmm. I think we're supposed to recall, oh, that may be when uh, Brooker, the previous elevator uh-huh. repairman, punched the TV. Tagged to television, yeah. So from at this point in the film, we we get into like full blown investigation mode, uh, research, and also some family drama sprinkled in there. Um, this makes sense, right? You can't just have constant elevator attacks. You got to pad things out just just right. Mm-hmm. I feel like in a lesser film, this would have been a really boring slog, you know. Uh, but uh-huh. the performances in this are all really good. Uh, the locations are great. Uh, all that helps to pull it along. Yes, and I. Another thing is my single favorite scene in the entire movie is in this section, which is the scene where Felix and De Beer go to a professor in his like college classroom mm-hmm. who explains what chips are to them. Yes. They're talking about microchips, but mm-hmm. he just keeps he says the word chips like four hundred times and starts telling all these bizarre anecdotes. They're all things like once there was a chip that went insane and acquired a soul. They had to launch the chip into space and that is the story of chips. <laughs> and then you know once there was a chip that rewrote its own program and it became evil and they were forced to incinerate it in a nuclear bomb, and that is how chips work. Now, he does say something about, like, there's a 
they, they went, there was this computer that went bad and they had to just bury it in the ground. They had to like seal it away, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, this was a scene that I, I liked it as well because it kind of felt like a, like a scene from a David Cronenberg film of the time period where yeah. characters go to a professor or scientist who then proceeds to say crazy things that you don't really buy 100%. Um, and then ultimately, I guess in the context of the film, like our protagonist, our, our main character, the, um, the elevator repairman, he's like, like, are you sure that guy knew what he was talking about? Uh, and, and she's like, yeah, yeah, he's an expert. He knows who he's Yeah, he's about. brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> he knows all about chips. He's yeah. one of the world's leading authorities on chips. Yeah. Uh, oh, and also one of the th- – oh, but the, the crucial fact we learn in the scene that will come into play later is that uh, according to this professor, sometimes chips are made out of living tissue and like they're proteins and organic cells to create chips. Uh, mm-hmm. But they stopped making chips out of things that are alive because the chips started growing too fast or something and could be influenced by radiation or magnets and that became too dangerous. Yeah, and th- I mean, this is where we're kind of getting into Cronenbergy territory here, where suddenly this film is beginning to feel like it's not entirely in the real world, that it is in a, a, uh-huh. a slightly science fiction version of the, the early 1980s, which, which I like very much. No, no, Rob, I, I, I think you're wrong. I mean, it, lest you forget that, that uh, episode from Real History where Bell Labs made a computer chip out of a ferret's brain, and then it had to be sent into the core of the Earth, or else it would have taken over all of the telephone lines. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Anyway, so we mentioned earlier that there was some some foreshadowing of like uh family strife and relationship drama between Felix and his wife and and uh fears about adultery. That that comes up later where there is I don't know, I was talking to Rachel about this. She she felt that the subplot was was sort of unnecessary and I I can see why you would go there because uh, so what happens is Felix and DeBeer, while they're investigating everything, are like sitting at a cafe talking about their investigation, and some friends see them and then tell his wife, and they, they convince his wife that he is having an affair. And uh, you can file this under uh, a thing that happens in a lot of movies, and I always find really annoying, and it is it is this. It's plot conflicts that are the result of a misunderstanding – which the protagonist could easily fix if they would just explain things, but for some reason they don't explain it. Right. So Felix's wife is like, You're, you are committing adultery. You are cheating on me. And he could say, no, I'm not. I'm trying to figure out why an elevator keeps killing people. But for some reason he just doesn't explain himself. And, yeah. and she leaves him. I find this a very annoying writing tick, and it's in a lot of movies, and I don't know exactly why that is so common. It might just be a a problem where like, I don't know, like the writer realizes that it would be tedious to have a scene where the character explains themselves. So you just skip over it, but like, it doesn't really make sense that a character would not bother to explain themselves. I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously they're trying to get at the fact that these two have clearly have some communication problems and, yeah. uh, you know, but 
to this level where he's not going to just be like, no, no, there, there's like legit people dying at this building. Look, here's a newspaper clipping. Yeah. Uh, or, yeah, or j- just explain the situation more. Uh, but instead, things uh, escalate to the next level of him, um, of him like walking in, going to that little uh, container where she keeps all the little uh, pop tops that she's collecting for that uh, to, to, to enter to win a trip to Hawaii. And lo and behold, it is, it is empty and his family is gone. Yes, I get, they have gone to Hawaii without him. You collect the 100th soda pop, and you and your and your loved ones, uh, and, and you can choose if your husband goes as well, are magically transported <laughs> to Hawaii, and there's no coming back. Right. and he, But he didn't want to go to Hawaii anyway, remember, because he'd been to an island before. He's been to an island, yes. He's, he's, he's familiar with it. He's like, maybe we could go to a peninsula. I don't know, I, but I've done an island. <laughs> I would like to go to a butte. <laughs> Well, anyway, the investigation continues. So uh, uh, De Beer and Felix go to the Rising Sun headquarters, the uh, Mm -hmm. company that makes the chips, the chips that control the elevator. And a couple things to point out about the Rising Sun headquarters, actually more than a couple. Uh, Interesting location, by the way, very barren. Yeah, um, this is an, another just a real coup of a location find because it feels like it's it was this is a, they filmed this in the the swamplands of Mordor or something uh-huh. like I don't know if this is like maybe a uh, an area of like reclaimed land in the Netherlands and this is like the first industrial building built out there or something but it looks just suitably desolate for a suspicious technology company uh, to have its headquarters. Like when you drive into this location today, your navigation app switches its voiceover to Andy Circus and starts just saying "This way, precious." Yeah, and and uh, so they're they're driving up on this barren swamp, and there's a sign out front. This I know this is just regular uh, Dutch, but to an English speaker, speaker, it looks amazing. It says "Verboden Togang," which means mm. no no trespassing. Nice, but. Rob, I don't know if you noticed the the other interesting thing about this building where they manufacture these chips, these chips. It's only two stories. Oh, they might not yeah. have an elevator in there at all. Yeah, no need for an elevator in this building. Mm. They they go they go wide and low. <laughs> so they come here and they meet with a Mr. Crone, a head of research, uh the, but the, they don't really turn up anything interesting. In fact, I don't even really recall much what they talked about in this scene. <laughs> Basically, he's just trying to blow him off. He's like, "I don't have time for you." Um, they're like, "What's that? Is that because you go into you go into this uh, this office and immediately to your left is the room where they're doing the top secret stuff, mm-hmm. um, but not to- so top secret that there's any security in place or anything." Right. So, yeah. uh, and he's just basically like, "I, I don't have time for this. You've got to leave." And um, I have, and I have to go back into do. this this room that's bathed in red light. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we are told that most of the chips are made in Japan these days, but they apparently make some of them here, and they're they're mostly doing maintenance. Uh, but but they're also like, yeah, we we don't have anything to do with anything going wrong at a at a plant. Like we have our name on the line here. Like we're yeah. we're a professional organization. We're not an evil corporation. Uh, why don't you get out of here? Did you get the message that the the chips that are made in Japan are just like those are the normal chips? Those are the ones that aren't going to start killing people, but the ones they make here these might be a problem. I suspect, because we're basically leading up to a big reveal here, but I suspect they're making not a normal type of chip here. They're making some sort of a, a previously established dangerous Cronenberg-y type of chip, some sort of biochip. That's right. So here we're going to get to our final showdown. I guess this is after after Felix's family has left him. You know, He has nothing left to live for, really. 
uh, he decides, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to face the elevator. Yeah, and this is this is like yeah the last leg of the film, and I thought it was tremendous. I thought it was very well it. done. Yeah. I was legitimately concerned that Felix was going to be killed by this elevator at times, which of course is is what you're supposed to feel as a as a viewer. Uh, it really had me on edge, uh, crawling you know in and out of this thing as the elevator is of course moving around with a will of its own, a murderous will of its own. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the the showdown in 2001: A Space Odyssey, except Ooh, yeah. it's it's all elevator. But it never talks. The elevator never gets right. to tell Felix, like, stop, don't do that. It doesn't sing Daisy. It just tries to crush him in various ways. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's it's a great sequence. It's it's well shot. Um, and then we, we, we lead up to the, like, the, the, the final part of the showdown, essentially, is, oh, uh, I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but one of the first things he tries to do is to, to get into that blue box and yeah. cut off the ships, but it's empty. There's nothing in it. It turns no out the uh, like the, the 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 computer center for this elevator system is somewhere else. And in this final sequence, he finds it in the elevator shaft itself, in this um, uh, this compartment in the wall of the shaft that's leaking some sort of a a glowing ectoplasm type substance. He has to crawl up there, and he's opening it up, and there is the biochip. This kind of yeah. slimy ectoplasm Cronenbergy mixture of circuitry and I don't know, like brain fluid or something. I was calling it command slime. There is yeah. command slime at the core, and and he tries to disrupt the command slime with a wrench. Yeah, and it's really great because, of course, it also adds the lighting of the sequence. So, yeah, he's trying to slam it with a wrench, and then the whole time the elevator is basically going up and down. I think some like hitting his body at times, trying yeah. to like rip him in half, and it's legitimately terrifying. Um, yeah, great sequence. In the remake, they do the same thing, except the the, the brain chip stuff is pink and bigger and kind of looks a little bit like Krang. <laughs> oh, does it have a face? No face, but oh, but very okay. Krangy. Okay. Basically, in the original, it looks like Ghostbusters 1 slime, and in the, mm-hmm. the remake, it looks like Ghostbusters 2 slime. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, oh, and the, there's a great rescue scene, actually, where uh, yeah. so the elevator the elevator is going to crush him, and it looks like our, our protagonist is doomed, uh, but then uh, uh, Mickey DeBeer shows up at the last moment and pulls him out of the uh, shaft just, yeah. uh, just in time. I thought, uh, he was, so- I thought he was goners. Yeah, yeah. I was like, that's it for Felix. Who's going to repair the kid's toy ambulance now and make it even louder than it was before? Uh, <laughs> Mom's new boyfriend can't do that. Um, but uh, but no, no, he's rescued. And and, uh, and so together, they. it seems like maybe they've saved the day and defeated the machine. Uh, but then we get, then we get a twist. Uh, the guy from the lab that's bathed in red light comes back. The guy from Rising Sun. And... So what does he explain at the end? He's like, well, this chip isn't working like it's supposed to. Yeah, he doesn't explain much, which I like. Like, basically, he shows up, he pulls a gun, and you're like, oh, he's come to protect the chip and to silence these people. But instead, he goes over to the shaft and shoots the biochip a few more times. It's, again, already been, like, hit with a wrench or a screwdriver or whatever. Um, And then he says something to the effect of, it was sick. It was Um, very sick, yes. It was very sick. And he doesn't get much of a chance to explain anything else because then what happens uh, with his back turned to the elevator shaft, one of the elevator cables, which had snapped earlier, comes, uh, comes out like a tentacle, wraps itself around his, uh, his neck and pulls him into the elevator shaft and strangles him to death. 
Now, I think they're pushing it a little bit here because I don't know how an elevator cable would do that even if the command chip wanted it to do that. Even if the command slime was like, go go reach out and get that guy. There's no mechanism <laughs> for it to do that. But you know what? We're right there at the end. Our our disbelief is suspended. They got us. They can get away with it. Yeah, uh, I, I totally bought it. And then, of course, we have a wonderful credit sequence where what are they doing? They're taking the stairs. Uh, they're taking the stairs down from whatever floor uh-huh. this was on where we had the showdown. I also like to imagine at the end that uh, that De Beer ends up writing about this incident in her tabloid. It's like right next to a story about Batboy or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it turns out nobody actually takes this story seriously because yeah. she doesn't represent reputable uh, uh, journalistic uh, uh, publication. <laughs> and that's the lift. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have to say this one, this one was a lot of fun. Yeah, totally. Now you you might be wondering, well, hey, I, I want to get in on this uh, this action. Where can I watch uh, 1983's The Lift? Uh, well, uh, you can do like I did. Uh, you can uh, simply uh, sign up for the Full Moon Channel. Uh, that way, you have access to a number of B movies. But uh, in my case, uh, anyway, uh, you got access to both The Lift and the remake. So that's pretty good. Uh, but I believe there was also, yeah, there was a Blu-ray that came out. Um, and uh, you can pick this uh, this up. This one uh, uh, is out from Blue Underground, uh, who have uh, excelled uh, with putting out some uh, some sort of uh, you know a cult following uh, B movie type affair. Uh, apparently, the the uh, Blu Ray for this has auto commentary uh, from uh, Dick Moss, so uh, uh, oh. that sounds pretty good, along with some other extras. All right, so check it out if you're interested. All right, if you'd like to listen to other episodes of Weird House Cinema, we put this out every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, We're primarily a science podcast, but on Fridays, we put most of the serious matters aside and just discuss a weird film. And uh, hey, if you you dig Weird House Cinema, uh, we now have uh, an Instagram account for Weird House Cinema. It's just Weird House Cinema, one word, no... Uh, you know, breaks or anything. Uh, you can go look that up. And also, uh, I uh, if, if you go there, you can find the links for this in the link tree. But I maintain a blog uh, titled Samuda Music, and I basically just use that as a place to put uh, little blog posts about the episodes as they come out. Uh, so if there's a trailer, I'll include it there. If there's some additional media that we've discussed that needs to go there, like, I don't know, the trailer for Amsterdamned, uh, then I'll put that in there as well. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas. Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 